0: you're listening to Knowing Faith, a podcast of Training the Church.
1: This is Kyle Worley, and I'm joined by my co host Jen Wilkin and JT English. On today's episode, we're going to talk about the end of the world. The apocalypse, eschatology, last things. We have a little bit of fun with this. We just scratched the surface on this topic. Uh, there's a lot more resources that we can point you to. We'll include some of those resources in the show notes. We hope you enjoy the discussion. Grace and peace. Welcome. We're so excited that you're listening in We're hoping you're, you're enjoying Knowing Faith I'll just tell you, we one of the things that's been so fun for us Is just getting to see that people are engaging with this This was just, again, stuff that we were doing We were just doing this in our offices At the coffee counter Getting water, walking down the halls Just talking about the issues that we were exploring because we were teaching and it was the day before. And, <laughs> and you we know, were
2: freaking we're, out. Hey,
1: what
0: am I supposed to teach? <laughs>
1: or we were workshopping something. Yeah. And like, so you'd have this conversation where like Jen would pop in and go, have, have you ever thought about this? And then you'd be like, huh, I wonder why she was asking me. And then the next day she'd be teaching it.
2: <laughs> and you're like, for okay. example, yeah. I mean, for example. <laughs> right, exactly.
1: Um, or JT would come in and be like, hey, have you ever thought about this? And and then you'd go, yeah, I have. And you start talking about it. He'd go, I have to go rewrite something. <laughs>
2: Ha, ha, ha. That's
0: happened more than once, for sure. So
1: we're so glad that you're listening, and we hope you're finding it profitable. Today, we're talking about the end of the world. We're talking about eschatology, the doctrine of last things, and we're really going to be focusing in on Matthew 23 through 25, and that's partly because we've been concluding, uh, or we have concluded now, a two-part study that took place over the whole year here in the Life of the Village uh, in men and women's Bible class around the the Gospel of Matthew. And so today, we're going to be looking at Matthew 23 through 25. I'll tell you, these are some of the most widely- uh disputed or or argued over chapters in the entire new testament a lot of ink has been spilled trying to make sense of what's going on in matthew 23 through 25 and so we're just going to jump in and uh, i think the first question to ask is when we're focusing on matthew 23 and 25 what is going on in these chapters what's happening in matthew 23 through 25 where are we at when this is happening um and how does it fit into the overall context of matthew
2: Well, Matthew of the Gospels is actually pretty highly organized, or at least a lot of people find a lot of structure in it. And there are five major discourses in the Gospel of Matthew, which many see corresponding to the five Old Testament books of the law that Jesus is the new lawgiver giving the new law. And uh, so when you find yourself in chapter 23, you are about to hear the fifth and final discourse. And Jesus knows that he is in the last days of his earthly ministry. And so it's good to think about these chapters as Jesus' final words, like when you think about what are the what are the most important things I would say if I knew I only had a little time left, that's the frame of mind that you're going to find Jesus in, and so he's going to choose specific audiences and specific messages, and we're going to find those here. Okay,
1: so fifth and final discourse. Yep, it's a big moment in the Gospel of Matthew because these discourses are part of the organizational structure of what's been going on. Mm-hmm. Maybe could we um, could we just start with Matthew twenty three. What is going on in Matthew 23? Cuz Matthew 23 does feel for the most part very different than 24 and 25. Why is why does it feel different and what is Jesus saying in Matthew
0: 23? He's a really I mean, you could argue that this all of these chapters are kind of apocalyptic literature, mm-hmm. but he's also speaking with an apocalyptic tone. I mean, right. he is he is really kind of ratcheted up the volume on the religious leaders on Jerusalem and on the religious practices of the day because he's trying to get his message across that everything that you've been about over the last several uh, decades or centuries, however you want to kind of interpret Second Temple Judaism, uh, you've created a religion of externals. Uh, God looks at the heart, but you've created a religion that is about appeasing man and pleasing men. And so he is giving them these woes or these warnings, these signs to turn around and repent because as Jesus said at the beginning of this gospel, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand.
1: Let me pause you. So what is a woe? A warning. A warning. Okay. I've heard it defined. I, I think that's great. That's really simple. Woe is a warning. Like turn back. Yep. And um, there was somebody I read whenever I was preparing to teach this a few, now it feels like forever ago. It was a couple months ago. But wo- woe is a pronouncement of doom mm-hmm. with pity.
2: Right. Which
1: I like a lot because it sounds like a metal album. <laughs> doom with pity. <laughs> right. Um, but uh, th- this sense of like, okay, there is impending danger. Like you said, JT, it's a warning. It's like you need to turn back, but don't just turn back because it's uh, like it's an option or it's a better option, but turn back because death is on the other side. That's right. Like death and destruction are on the other Mm -hmm. side of this thing. If you cross over this line, you're going to end up um, falling into something terrible. Right. Right. So Jesus has a whole ministry of rebuking the Pharisees and the scribes, right? That's happening all throughout.
2: It is, but he's taken a shift here. He's really, mm-hmm. he's, he's directly confronting them in a way that he hasn't previously because he knows that the time, his time is at hand. Mm-hmm. And he knows exactly what he needs to do in order to go to the cross. And so he's now, whereas in the past he said, don't tell anyone what I did, or he's addressing only the disciples with an interpretation of a parable or something like that. Here, it's, it's going to be a full frontal attack.
1: And so what are some of the specific things that he's calling out? in these verses. What are some of the specific pronouncements of woe?
2: Really, I don't think you see a lot of new ideas come up okay. in in these woes. I think what you're seeing is sort of the culmination of the message that he's been preaching all along. Mm-hmm. And he is just it's as if to say if there's any remaining doubt about what my message has been with regard to the scribes and the Pharisees, we're going to get rid of it right now. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. And I think it's on honestly too. It's not just that the specifics Don't bear mentioning because he's been repeating them constantly. But also because I think in the woes, what we're not seeing is that like sometimes I feel like in in passages of scripture like this, there's a tendency to go, what's the one-to-one correspondence? Like what did Jesus rebuke the Pharisees for Mm -hmm. and how does that play into what I'm doing? Whereas I think it's bigger than that. It's really a systematic takedown of all of the hypocrisy and false religion underneath those things. So it's not necessarily like, oh, it's this one specific thing and this is how it correlates to something that you might be involved in. But it is generally this pronouncement of woe against false religion and hypocrisy.
0: And in some kind of a weird sense, thinking about this one-to-one correspondence to what they might have been doing to what we might be doing now is almost a pharisaical or scribal-like tendency Mm -hmm. to viewing the heart. That I need to take care of my religious externals Mm -hmm. in order to make sure I'm obedient to God versus realizing this is an issue of the
1: heart. Exactly. So, uh, like, reading this and going okay great I'm not I, I'm not falling into any of these seven things yeah. I'm good it's like yeah. no there's a thousand things he could have listed here that's right he listed seven that are indicative of the they're, whole they're,
0: they're illustrations yes of the darkness of our yeah, heart yeah
1: I think that's really good um, so I've heard and Jen you were the first person to mention this to me um, so I hope I'm not like Surprising you with this—it's not in our (laughs) notes. I don't think. But I said that. um, But you had said that some draw a connection between the woes here and the beatitudes.
2: Yeah, I kind of love this, and I know that there's some question around it, but it appeals to me from in a text that does have a lot of order built into it. It makes sense to me that this is something that you might see, but you look at it and you think, okay, well, there's there's. First of all, in the old Jesus is all throughout the gospels, and particularly in Matthew, he is he's invoking Old Testament language for a purpose. So he'll say, Truly I say to you, which is clearly a twist on that prophetic formula Mm -hmm. of Mm -hmm. thus saith the Lord. Or you've heard it said. Or you've heard that it was said. And so when you get here, you're in his last discourse or you're almost to his last discourse. And, And and those who have a pretty decent memory of where we started can tell you that at the beginning of his first discourse, he begins with eight beatitudes. Um, blesseds, And if you look at the Old Testament prophets, the way that they did, it wasn't just that they made statements of woe, there were statements of woe and there were statements of blessing associated with obedience and so on and so forth. So here again, you can see him co-opting that pattern and using it for his own means. And if you take a look at your Bible, you, you look for chapter 23, verse 14, and it becomes pretty quickly apparent that it's not there. And that's because there is a a verse that was in uh, a lot of manuscripts, but not in the oldest manuscripts that has been dropped out in many of our translations. And the verse that's there in 2314 is actually text that is not foreign to the Bible. It occurs in, a, in in an identical form just about in in Luke and in Mark. So it's in the other two Synoptic Gospels, but it's been removed here because it's in many but not the oldest manuscripts. And when you add it back in, you end up with eight woes that mm-hmm. that have an actually a very close correspondence in language and in and in force to mm-hmm. what Jesus was saying in the eight Beatitudes. So we we will not go through them all, but just for example. Twenty three thirteen says, "Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You, ne- you neither enter yourselves, nor allow those who would enter to go in." Golly. You compare that to the first beatitude in Matthew five three, which says, "Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven." Mm-hmm. So you see that Jesus pronounces blessing on an open kingdom, and he pronounces woe on a kingdom that is shut. Mm-hmm. Um, just really quickly, the second one, that verse that's been dropped out, 2314, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense you make long prayers, therefore you will receive the greater condemnation. Think about the second beatitude, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And so you see a contrast between Jesus' blessing comfort for mourners versus pronouncing distress Uh, versus pronouncing woe on those who cause distress for mourners. Mm. And so there, if you, you know, if you nerd out over it, you can walk through how the rest of these align and see that he's actually hitting on the same ideas, which Mm -hmm. that may sound like, oh, you're doing crazy things with the text. But even if you say that there are only seven woes and eight beatitudes, you should still appreciate the enormous amount of overlap between Mm -hmm. these two passages and know that that even if you don't want to have nice, neat numbers, there's definitely a correlation being made here. The thing, the
0: thing that I love about readings like that or similar uh, readings is just to be reminded, and Dr. Pennington, who's been on this podcast before, uh, he te- when he comes and teaches in the training pro- program for us, would remind us that the gospel writers would have had decades with this material yeah. and rethinking about it. And so they're not just sitting down writing kind of a... Uh, you know, kind of a journalistic article. They're not with- bloggers. No, They're yeah, writers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and yeah. they've been preaching this message for a long time. So they've had an opportunity to let this material settle into their hearts. So it's certainly not uncommon to see themes like this. I think that's really beautiful. I recently at the village, we going through a sermon series on the kingdom of God and was asked to preach part of Matthew chapter five and chapter five verses 17 through 20 is kind of this, this pinnacle or thesis of Jesus's sermon on the mountain. You could even argue the entire gospel of Matthew. Mm-hmm. And at the very end, kind of thinking about the scribes and Pharisees, he says, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never inherit the kingdom of heaven right. and as we get out of chapter 23 it's like he is taking that message ramp he's, he's yeah, talking he's still
2: to saying the same thing, the exact
0: same thing and here he is kind of going full tilt mm-hmm. you preach but you don't practice you do your deeds but you do it to be seen by others you want to be called rabbi but you don't have any rabbi other than one rabbi and so he's really he's going after this entire religious establishment and turning it over upon its head. Yeah, and uh, and
1: an entire religious establishment that had um, become misdirected and that was leading people astray, you know, outside of the pronouncement of woe, the most repeated word or phrase in Matthew 23 is blind or blind guides. Yes, yes. So it seems like underneath all the woes is that the indictment against the Pharisees and the scribes is not just that they have gone astray, but that in their going astray, in their blindness, they are also leading the religious That's community right. of Israel astray, which actually I think amplify, amplifies the indictment. Mm-hmm. Because it's not just Jesus saying, you yourself have gone astray, because you see Jesus all throughout his ministry go to those who are astray and mm-hmm. say, hey, it's okay, come near. So why is it with the Pharisees or scribes he's heavy handed? It's because their hubris and their pride of false religion and hypocrisy is not just that they have gone astray, but that they are now leading others astray mm-hmm. to a religious establishment and community. Um, and so it is really fascinating. I, I love that connection you make, Jen, between Matthew 23 and or, or that you were talking about. I don't know if it's unique to you, but you're talking about between the woes and the Beatitudes. Um, moving from Matthew 23, at the end of Matthew 23, there's a pr- perspective shift here. Mm-hmm. Um, and so because Matthew 23, 24, and 25 really need to be seen as a unit. Yeah. And so at the end of Matthew 23, you know, Jesus pronounced these woes. And then I'm going to read just Matthew twenty-three thirty-seven through 39 into 24, verse one, because it kind of captures the move that's happening here. So Jesus concludes this pronouncement of woes. And it says in verse 37, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you would not. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So now the perspective begins to shift towards Jesus talking about future things, Mm -hmm. okay? Because you're not gonna see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. 24 verse one. Jesus left the temple. Okay, so now the, the actual setting has changed, right? He's mm-hmm. leaving the temple and he's going away. And when, it says, when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple, but he answered them, you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And so let's just begin by asking a simple question. What is Jesus doing in Matthew 24? Mm-hmm. And then the big question that we need to get to is, is Matthew 24 about the past, mm-hmm. about Jesus's present day, about our present right now, or about the future.
0: Yeah, I think it's important to, I think we've said this on the podcast before, if you, if I could sum up the storyline of the Bible in one small phrase, it would be God with us. And so we have this storyline of Genesis one and two of God dwelling with his people, Genesis three, us losing his presence, and then the entire story of the Old Testament is God reestablishing his presence with his people. He does so uh, in the Ark of the Covenant, he does so at the tabernacle and he does so again at the temple, but then they lose God's presence as they're sent into exile. So the whole hope of the New Testament is, is will God ever dwell with us again? And the mm-hmm. gospel writers open up most of the gospels saying, you shall call him Emmanuel because he will be God with us. Or this is uh, God from God. This is the uh, this is the um, John one. i I'm forgetting the terminology. Um, in the beginning, uh, in the, the beginning, yeah, yeah, I was, the I was, was, I was trying to say the Nicene the word Creed. Was <laughs> <laughs> I was mixing the Nicene Creed with John one one, yeah. uh, but yeah, that's so, like a typical systematic thing. Yeah, there legend, it is. Man. It just all just, read read it, it all just together, the yeah. Creeds. Yeah, that's right. Um, but here, so I want to make sure we don't overlook this in chapter twenty four. Jesus left the temple. Again, he's not just providing some kind of a history for us. He's making a theological claim here. I think in in, in verse chapter twenty four, verse 1.
1: right. Because early in his public ministry, it's a big deal in Luke four that you read like Jesus
0: is in he's the temple. He's going to the temple. Yep. He's continually entering the temple which is a theological claim of the presence of god yeah the kingdom is here your exile is over jesus has come to, ex- to end your exile yeah. but here in the midst of judgment in the midst of these woes of destruction jesus leaves the temple and so again it's a theological claim uh, and then in in verse 3, which I, which we haven't read yet, it says that he sat down on the Mount of Olives. A lot of commentators would say that this is a, a reference point to a passage in Ezekiel that I want to read for us just briefly. So Ezekiel chapter 10 is envisioning this day, the day when the glory of the Lord will leave the temple. So the temple represents the presence of God. And in chapter 10, verse 18, it says this, the glory of the Lord went out from the threshold of the house and stood over the cherubim. And then in one chapter later, chapter 11, verse 23, it says this and the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain that is on the east side of the city, which would be the mm-hmm. Mount of Olives. Mm-hmm. And so you have this incredible Ooh. picture in the old Testament of Ezekiel envisioning this day when the That's presence really good. Yeah, when the presence of God will <laughs> leave the temple and hover over the mountain on the Mount of Olives. And, mm-hmm. and I think Matthew very familiar with his old Testament is making this claim of, of destruction of wow. apocalypse, of mm-hmm. judgment coming down upon Jerusalem and the religious establishment and the scribes and Pharisees. And so when Jesus now goes to the Mount of Olives, he continues this discourse of apocalyptic literature, instructing them of the destruction that's coming. Yeah.
1: What bridge is God calling you to cross that the gospel might go forth among the nations? Women like Lillias Trotter, Harriet Newell, and Sarah Hall Boardman Judson have indeed crossed their own bridges to get to the lost. Discover the stories of ten inspiring female missionaries who changed the world for Christ. Ten women who changed the world. As seminary president Daniel Aiken's powerful tribute to these women who fulfilled the Great Commission, may we all follow in their footsteps. Ten women who changed the world is available wherever books are sold. your copy today.
2: He's been hinting at it too. Earlier in the Gospel of Matthew, he has turned to Peter and said, when he gives him his new name, he says, your name is Pebble. And on this rock, I will build my church. So he's already been employing the language of stones. He's mentioned the chief cornerstone, the stone that makes... Uh, others uh, be crushed by it. And so he's been using stone language and here he says, not one stone will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't hit us the way that it would have hit his disciples who Mm -hmm. are good Jews. When they hear him say that the temple will be destroyed in their conception, they cannot imagine that such a thing would take place until every other building had been destroyed. They cannot imagine any other building still standing at the point that that building would fall. Mm-hmm. And so for him to make this pronouncement is to say to them, it's the end of the world. That's right.
1: Yeah. And, you know, I think one of the things that um, that both of, the, both of those things that you just shared are so helpful in understanding Matthew 24... But when the reader is just reading Matthew 24, it is one of the most discombobulating chapters in the New Testament. We
2: we have major gaps in our understanding of, of history, just, just flat out the history of Israel. But specifically this period of history that we're walking into at this point with the ministry of Christ Um and if you, if you wanted to look at, I think you said it this way, Kyle, I think this comes from you. You said that if you look at the, like the markers in our American history, 9-11 is a date everyone knows. And, and the same date in, in, in the history of Israel would be?
1: eighty seventy. Eighty
2: seventy. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. That or the Maccabean revolt of the intertestamental mm-hmm. period. So we get to Matthew 24, most of the time as readers. And again, it's, it. I want to acknowledge, like, not shame on you, reader, that you don't... No, not That, at all. that Israel's history is not your history. It's very hard. It is yeah. part of Bible reading and Bible immersion is making the story of Israel our story, mm-hmm. like learning it, that they lived it. We have to kind of enter back in and learn it. And so when you get to Matthew 24, it's easy to read Matthew 24 and go wow, this is really confusing. But Matthew 24 would have been like, um, there are parts of Matthew 24 um, that would have felt very clearly like, wow, they're referencing the Maccabean revolt of the intertestinal Mm -hmm. period Mm -hmm. where uh, I I believe it was Antiochus, right? Mm -hmm. Epiphanes, who had come in uh, and he uh, sets up an idol to Zeus and offers pigs a sacrifice in the temple. This is before Jesus shows up. Right. So this in the 400 years that we call the intertestamental period between Malachi and Matthew. That happens, okay, in that intertestamental period. So keep in mind, when you read all of the political turmoil that's happening in the Gospels, why does it seem like there are factions? Because it is a politically tumultuous age. Oh, yeah. There are different factions that are vying. They are under oppression and under oppression of rulers that have – committed sacrilege against the presence of Yahweh. Yeah, that's right. And so um, when you, when you get to Matthew 24, looking in the rearview mirror is Antiochus Epiphanes and what they called in Daniel mm-hmm. prophesying the abomination of desolation. desolation. When you get to Matthew 24, though, it's also pointing forward to AD 70, mm-hmm. which is when Rome would come in and sack Jerusalem and destroy the temple, which is not an insignificant moment either, right?
2: Mm, right, and set up the set up the insignia of the Roman legion there at the altar. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So, like,
1: these are kind of these two moments that are happening. It would be like being between Pearl Harbor and 9-11, mm-hmm. right, Where if, with the abomination of desolation of in the intertestinal period being Pearl Harbor, and then AD 70 and the sacking of Jerusalem being 9-11. That kind of cult, like, that would have been shaping the pillars of their imagination. And so when you get to Matthew 24, if you know that, well, then the question about, well, what is Matthew actually commenting on? It gets a little bit clearer Mm -hmm. because when you read Matthew 24, you're like, well, is this all about the far future? I I think that while there is some portion of Matthew 24 we'll get to in a minute that could be read and should be read as Jesus talking about the far future, things that are still have yet to come even in our own day, most of Matthew 24 is trying to make sense of the present moment that Jesus finds himself in and the tension between the first abomination of desolation and the second one which would be an eighty seventy, or at least that's my reading mm-hmm. is that do you guys have significant differences there? no
0: I, I think that's right I think verses 20 chapter 24 verses 4 through 35 are kind of about this near term future yep. and everything that follows perhaps about this further for the yep. future ahead of us
1: Jen do you feel the same way about that yep
0: wow look at that, that almost never happens oh, in yeah.
2: or between the three of us just the, hey, <laughs> just the three of us so we you
0: get you some t- coffees in here cheers yeah. An-
1: another good thing to understand about matthew 24 is that we have a hard time with matthew 24 because we have a hard time with daniel yeah like yes. so like part of the problem is that we get to matthew 24 you know that back half of daniel that you skip in your bible reading <laughs> Okay, that back half of Daniel, while it's very confusing and difficult, is in, it is uh, affecting the imagination of the Jews of Jesus' day in ways well, and that Jesus are himself. And Jesus He's himself in ways that are hard for us to understand. So, son of man language, mm-hmm. you may be like, "Why, son of man?" That's Daniel, Daniel. language. Mm-hmm. It's Daniel language. It's eschatological. It's political. Mm-hmm. It's it's supercharged language. theological. It's theological. And so when you get here and you're like, okay, Jesus is being called the Son of Man. They're talking about this abomination of desolation. These all seem like really foreign things, and they are foreign things, but not all of them are foreign because they haven't happened yet. Yeah. They're just foreign because they didn't happen to us directly. Mm-hmm. Right? and i think that that's easy for us to get confused in. and so when but there are there is a passage or part of passage in matthew 24 that we just need to acknowledge is either confusing or it's a part of the far future. so if you look at verses 36 and following because if most of the first 35 verses are about the what we call near future or what was going to happen with 8070 when you turn to verse 36 All of a sudden, Jesus starts talking about not in those days, but in that day. Mm -hmm. The language gets really specific there. Uh, Before that, he'd been mentioning those days, like in these days, in those days. But then in verse 36, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the son, but the father only. And then he begins to talk about a coming day and a day of great judgment. And I think this is where the perspective changes from the near future of eighty seventy to the far future of things that we have not yet seen even today. Yeah, I agree with
0: that. Yep, I think so.
1: Okay. Jen, you did the click. You did the I don't, hmm, know, about I don't know about that.
2: that Just keep talking. I might jump in. We'll see. Okay. <laughs> I
1: I think I might disagree with you, but you need to say more. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, no. Uh, you're saying in verse 36?
1: Yes, when that the, that's when the perspective changes. What do you uh,
2: think? Potentially, yeah. What I don't a, know. Well, what? so here's the deal. So I know we get down to verse 40 and it says two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. And we're all like, oh my gosh, I saw a movie about that.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, DC Talk wrote a song about
2: it. <laughs> right, right. And actually when I was, I was not a part of this, that
1: Christian
0: subculture, praise <laughs> the Lord. Because you <laughs> probably
2: weren't born. <laughs> you missed but, out. Uh, <laughs> oh my gosh, I, when, I probably wasn't. <laughs> when I taught this, I asked the women, I said, raise your hand if if you want to be taken. And then I said, raise your hand if you want to be left behind. Mm. And every single woman in two sections raised her hand and said, I want to be taken. And yet the description here, if we're talking about the invasion of Rome and the destruction of the, the invasion of Jerusalem, the siege of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple is a picture of a Roman conquering army coming through and grabbing slaves and dragging them away. Mm -hmm. It's not, and so you really actually, you would like to be left behind. Behind, mm-hmm. and so I'm not convinced that what's being discussed Aren't in
0: this—Are you this doing Bible literacy in those classes?
2: Section, you're telling
0: me that all of your students got is, it wrong is
2: well. I'm saying it is a it is a moment of a, self-examination it's a, it's, where you ask, "Where did my theology around this come from?" We get to did it have a celebration
0: of learning here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's relearn like that.
2: Yeah. Uh, Anyway, I could see how these passages are actually still talking about the destruction of the temple Mm -hmm. Um, because during, you know, it was a a lengthy siege that led up to it. People starved, people were carried off into, you know, all of the terrible things about running to the hills, all of these things, they did flee to the hills when the the siege began. So there's a lot to be said in this passage that, which is not to say there is not a future element of fulfillment, but that there is certainly a historical element uh, to these as well.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, that, that's really helpful. And I think that w- whether it's uh, present commentary that Jesus was doing about eighty seventy or about the, what we'd call the near future or about far future, at the very least, he's commenting on things that are coming in the near future that will have implications for the far future. Yes. Sure. Yeah. Which is helpful. But in Matthew 25, though, I think we all agree.
2: Yeah. That hey, is... Hey, can
1: we do... Oh, sorry, go ahead. I agree with that. No, you, you agree with where I'm going?
2: <laughs> I do. I agree that Matthew 25 is future. I'm that's, trying to look and see...
1: That it's far future right
2: yes because i always prepare a whole lot before these and never do it during the <laughs> actual podcast
0: <laughs> what were you about to say jt well i think one of the questions we get a lot in the training program yep. around who jesus is mm-hmm. and what he's able to do it comes from uh, chapter 24 verse 36 uh jesus seemingly not knowing something yeah. yeah right so there's kind of this theological question of like i thought he was god like, right isn't he omniscient right isn't, shouldn't he have understanding so Kyle, why don't you explain a little bit about? Oh, oh <laughs> no! Just why are you putting there. me on blast like thought, that, man? Well, you're, I mean, the, just, you're the Christology uh, I'm guy. You're the Trinitarian guy. <laughs>
1: no, well, I mean, yeah, uh, you know what? <laughs> we should talk about it because I bet we would answer this question differently. I think we would. Well, you answer
0: it first. Oh, <laughs> Oh, my God! I thought I just asked you to answer it. No, but okay, I'm okay. I'll, I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll do it. Uh, I think anybody answering this question saying it's clear probably has a misunderstanding of the complexities yep. involved. And so there's certainly challenges here. But if, you, if you've if you been somebody who's wondered, okay, I thought Jesus was fully God. I thought Jesus was fully man, but yet one person, how does he not know something? Uh, one thing that we're trying to do when we, when we do Christology is, and Christology is not a systematic category. It's really what the gospel writers are doing. They're trying to give a presentation of who this, of who God is, who came to us in the person of Jesus. And so when we do when we do Christology we're saying that Jesus is one person but two natures that he's fully God and fully man that he is enti- he entirely shares in this essence of the one uh e- the one essence of god but yeah. he also is fully man like us in every single way mm-hmm. except sin and so this is why it's beautiful that we have a great high priest that can empathize with us sympathize because he has endured everything that we have except uh, sin himself he's not sinned himself and so we would expect that if he's like us in every way except sin that he would learn things there'd be things that he doesn't know there'd mm-hmm. be things that he has to come to a knowledge of the gospel writers are not ashamed of saying things like that earlier, that he grew in wisdom and stature, that he learned things, that he grew tired, or that he was weary, that he actually cries, and so he would expect everything true of humanity, including this: that there's things that that he doesn't know. But the, my perspective on Christology would would lead me to say that he is the God-Man, and so at the same time that he doesn't know, he does know. Uh, in his divine nature, he doesn't know. In his human nature, so the is challenges, he yeah, the, the, the challenges. He's not. <laughs> this is called the communication of attributes okay. in theology, where we communicate both attributes of divinity and humanity to the one person. So it's certainly not a lie, is it? But we would not want to say that God endured a divine death at the death of Jesus, but that the human nature was uh, that which that did die is kind of absorbed into the divine life. Mm and so it's it's super challenging yeah right? i think we just probably blew some people's heads and that wasn't my intention mm-hmm. i want to be helpful no
2: like every time i have to talk about this right. i just want to go like you know can i just play a little bit something that jt said because i can't it's just right. it's hard it's it hard to it's talk hard. about it's hard to every, think about and every
0: and if i'm honest every time i teach it and say it i'm like i, th- I think that's right like it's right. it's so if yeah. you're hearing this listen we know that this is challenging but whenever you're speaking of Jesus, we we want to speak of the person acting, mm-hmm. not natures. Uh, there's some uh, church he- uh, heresy in, in the history of the church around uh, separating the natures too firmly or too 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 farly. But we would do we do want to make a distinction between the two because uh, they don't blend into each other. That he's not one nature and one person. He does embody this fully human and fully divine nature. And we also know that there's things that Jesus knows infinitely. Right? He knows that he that that. Uh, um, that uh, the disciple was sitting under the tree before he got there, right? So there's clearly times in the gospels where the gospel writers are trying to make both claims of divinity and humanity about Jesus.
1: That's really helpful. And I want to say more about that, but we don't have time.
0: Oh, here we go. That's why you made me go first. We'll huh? do a Christology yeah, you're gonna. You're, yeah, okay, here we go.
1: <laughs> so if Matthew 24 is mostly about the present, and uh, or that Jesus is addressing the crowd right in front of him about present issues, and Matthew 24 is kind of either about the near future or far future, and Matthew 25 is about the far future, about things that still have not yet happened, these things that are waiting to be fulfilled, of which the Son needs, knows neither the day nor the hour, but the Father only, then... I guess some of my questions are what is the relationship between – like what What should people deduce from this? Like what do you do with these three chapters that are pretty heavy when it comes to pronouncement of woe, days of judgment? Isn't God a God of love? Isn't there – like w- this seems like a lot of bad stuff, like a lot of negative stuff about, man, this is happening and it's not going to be great. I mean it is bad news. This judgment is bad news. So what do we do with that practically, pastorally? How do we – Where do we go from here?
2: Well, I I like the way that Matt has talked about it, where he says that there's no such thing as love without wrath. Mm -hmm. That if you love something purely, you will be jealous about the object of that thing that you love, you will, and, and so wrath, uh, you know, I think he uses a parenting analogy that because I love my children so much, if someone does anything to harm them, they will certainly incur my wrath. Mm. Uh, and so that's helped me a lot in thinking about it and reconciling the love of God to the wrath of God. I'd love to tell you that because I understand it from a theological standpoint that it just rests lightly on my heart, but it doesn't. I think yeah. these are kind of like, even with Christology, there are things you revisit again mm-hmm. and again. Mm-hmm. To, to keep a grasp on.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think, I mean, I, w- I would agree with that wholeheartedly. I think Matt does teach this well, but that there can be no love of God without the wrath yeah. of God. Yeah. Yeah.
2: It's like, I've even heard it, it's an expression of his love. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I think another part of it, too, just in the context, is that Jesus is preparing his disciples, like, hey, It's going to be tough. Yeah. And here's what's true though. There is a day coming when I'm going to triumph over the things that seem like they've crushed you. Like, Mm because he knows, hey, what we believe about the end, it changes how we endure through trials. And Mm -hmm. they're about to encounter some serious trials. Mm -hmm. And so Jesus is telling them in Matthew 24, it's going to get dark. But in Matthew twenty-five, he's reminding them, "Like I am coming. That's right. I'm mm-hmm. going to finish this work."
0: Even reminded in verse thirteen of chapter twenty-four. But the one who endures to the end yeah. will be saved. So it's this mm-hmm. call to steadfastness, faithfulness, Persevere. enduring perseverance until Which the end.
2: He's about to act out. He right. is about, oh, yeah. you know. I mean, that's the thing is when embodied, when they yes. he knows that at this point it's kind of like the parables. They're they're still kind of like, wait, what? But they're going to look back on this. He's he's building uh, sort of like theological muscle memory for them, so that when they can look back on what has played out, mm-hmm. they will know, you know, oh, we've seen wrath poured out, um, and it was for good, and we we know what it looks like for someone to suffer unjustly, so we can do the same. And so some of it is this. Certainly, this text is pointing forward in the sense that they didn't fully understand it, um, but they will at a later point. But then, I mean, you go, you think about first Peter, which says we should understand it in a way that they didn't because we have the whole story. And so I think there is some of that is for us to read this and say, well, based on where he is in his message, we should read this as a pastoral message Mm -hmm. that he is not just throwing around a group of random ideas. Uh, I think that helps give us an interpretive lens is to say, if these are his final words, Mm -hmm. how would these have been intended to give not just uh, comfort or or bearing, but genuine help to them in the immediate days ahead. And then in the years that would follow his resurrection. That's good.
1: For more information, you can look into the show notes in the podcast description. We'd be honored for you to leave us a podcast review on iTunes or wherever you find your podcast. You can find us online at trainingthechurch.com. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter by searching Knowing Faith. On our next episode, we're going to talk about how to do theology, so theological method. Uh, spoiler alert, my way is the right way. We'll see you next time. Grace and peace.